I've spent the last many, many, many years learning how to do less as an actor. And sometimes doing something that feels really authentic feels incredibly vulnerable. Hi, you're listening to Looks Like Work. I'm your host, Hedva Kleinler, and yeah, it's the least pronounceable name you've ever heard, but you'll get used to it. I'm a serial entrepreneur who's obsessed with curiosity, creativity, and grit, and that's just to get started. I really can't get enough of learning more about people's career choices. What fulfills them? How do they deal with burnout, with heartbreak? How do they protect their boundaries? And is it all even working? Those are questions that keep me up at night, and I hope to explore here. On this podcast, we'll have deep conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, people juggling a few jobs, sometimes even a few industries, sharing what looks like work for them. With that, on to the episode. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Hedda. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. We have met... A few years ago, I think maybe even four or five years ago, and I've been such a fan of what you do, and not only what you do, but how you do it, because in your industry, you have kind of created a different language, and I want you to tell us about this. So who are you, and what do you do, and what is the difference between those two things? Oh my gosh, that was uh, that just that gave me like beautiful shivers. I was I was very honored by that introduction. So thank you so much. Uh, so my career path has been very interesting and varied and uh, circuitous sometimes, but what unites all of the things that I do is the human voice and what the human voice is capable of in the world and and one on one and to groups and all of those things. So. I grew up uh, singing from the time that I was little bitty with my family in church, Von Trapp style, very dorky. And I got into theater very early on, and I ended up going to college to pursue a degree in musical theater. So yes, I actually got a degree in singing and dancing and acting. That is amazing. <laughs> and then I and then I was the full American cliche of small town girl moves to New York City to make it on Broadway. And I came to New York City after graduating college and pursued a professional acting career in musical theater. I got to meet a lot of really cool people and do some really cool projects. And at, at some point, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more later, I realized not for the first time, that acting is a terrible way to make a consistent living. And I, so most actors, most artists, I think, end up at some point in their life doing uh, support jobs or survival jobs, as they're sometimes called, at while you pursue your art. And I had just gotten back from the national tour of Les Miserables, where I had had a steady paycheck and a 401k and paid oh, wow. vacation for the first time in my life. And I was like, you know, I kind of liked that. <laughs> that felt good. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to temp anymore. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to do these like little temporary things that don't fulfill me. I was never, I managed to never wait, wait tables, which is kind of amazing. Most of the yeah. actors that I know at some point wait tables. All of that to say, I had been teaching singing lessons for a long time and working with both kids and teenagers and also my peers professionally. And 
I went on an interview that I thought was for a singing coaching position with a particular firm in New York City. And it turns out that they needed a speech coach. And I was like, huh, yeah, I think I can do that. (laughs) I think I'm equipped to do that. And I ended up working for this company for a few months. And the first, my first client was a woman with a podcast who actually now has this amazingly successful, very high profile podcast, but she was in the beginnings of her podcast. She didn't like how her voice sounded. She was losing her voice and she wanted to figure out how to have this be a better experience for her. And so I was able to take all of the knowledge that I had as a performer, as an actor, as a singer and bring it to her and how she used her voice. And I, it was so satisfying to me in a different way, but a very adjacent way to all of the other things that I'd done with my life, performing and teaching. And at the same time, I realized very quickly that I did not like working for that company at all. And this is where I will finally work my way around to your original question, which is like, what is different about what you do? (laughs) Uh, It was a very circuitous way to get there. They were working, I observed, under a pretty typical model of voice and public speaking and presence coaching, which is there is a correct way to sound like a competent and serious human. And we're going to teach you how to do your most credible imitation of that style. We're going to teach you how to put on your serious voice so people will take you seriously. And the serious voice is slow and controlled and has excellent diction and is very round and not coincidentally sounds like a sort of idealized version of a middle-aged white man. Totally. Yeah. And so I was working primarily with women and with people of color and with English as a second language speakers. Mm -hmm. And I was so uninterested in teaching them how to sound like a middle-aged white man. (laughs) So uninterested in that. It just, it it seemed like such a, a loss for the world to cover up their voices, their real voices with a costume of what we consider leaders to sound like. So I decided not to do that. (laughs) And therefore I had to leave that organization and I had to, and at the same time I met my co-founder, Julie Fogg, and we had this very sort of similar path. She's also an actor. She also has a a great deal of training as an actor and had traveled the world and, you know, done theater in, in Russia and lived in Denmark. And we, we had the same dissatisfaction with the state of public speaking, communication, coaching. And suddenly these two women who had never started a company before, had never done anything like this, were sitting across from each other and going like, are we starting a company? I think we're starting it. We're starting a company. Okay. (laughs) We're starting a company. (laughs) So, so we built vital voice training uh, to be the company that we we wanted to see in the world, I guess. We we wanted to help people access more of their voices, more of their identities, to bring that to each different given circumstance that they're in. You know, all the world's a stage is a is a great Shakespeare quote. It's also kind of a reality of how we interact with people. We we move into these scenes. We move into these scenes with other people and then we have to make choices within them in how we want to be perceived, how we want the other person to see see us. What are we trying to accomplish in the moment? And we make those choices. 
yeah, when are we not storytelling? When are we not trying to like bring the other person into our world and to like compel them? Exactly. Totally. I totally, totally identify with this. And I love what you said, because I remember, I, I don't know if that was our first interaction or or one of our first interactions. We met through uh, the Dreamers and Doers community, uh, shout out. Mm, yes. And one of the our first interactions, at least, was when I was going to pitch in a startup competition or something like that. And I had so much anxiety and so many hangups around my voice because I always remember that people would call even, you know, even my house as, as you know, as a grown-up, you know, be- before before nobody had left oh, my yes. before. <laughs> And they would say, oh, hi, how old are you? Can you write a note for mommy? (laughs) And as an entrepreneur, where you're all already like, you feel like you're at a disadvantage for not being a middle-aged white man, Mm -hmm. but, you know, like a nice (laughs) younger younger woman who's maybe comes across as as cute Mm. and you don't want to come across as cute you want to be authoritative and you want to be compelling and you want to take the audience on a journey and like make them feel I remember hearing uh, actually on another podcast where I was being interviewed and a a VC was also being interviewed and he said I want to be able to close my eyes and think whether I can imagine this entrepreneur ringing uh, you know the bell at NASDAQ and who do you like when you close your eyes and you're like listening to entrepreneur and you're saying can this person you know ring the bell nasdaq what are like what voice are you looking for so i loved it when you gave me tips for not you know speaking from my throat uh but you said like you sound great you sound like an entrepreneur sounds like you don't have to change yourself and this ties into something that i love that i think uh we discussed back then and, and ever since and today i saw on your site as well is you're saying like, what does authority sound like? Mm-hmm. Who says authority has to sound a certain way? Did you find that you had to convince your clients that they're okay? Yes, all the time. What does authority sound like has been our core workshop since the beginning. And actually, like that really brings me back to that day where we were like, are we starting a company? We're starting a company. We bought our domain name. We bought vitalvoicetraining.com. And Julie had mentioned that day that she had been following this feminist business uh, person online for a while named Jennifer Desira, who has a community called Get Bullish. And the Bullish Conference was looking for speakers. And we're like, Mm. oh, these are so our people. (laughs) So we came up with a couple of paragraph pitch And a title of a workshop. And the title of that workshop was What Does Authority Sound Like? Because we knew that these these feminist business folks would be the audience that were ready to hear that message of, first of all, we need to figure out what we mean when we say authority. What do we mean by authority? That's such a good question. Because I think for most people and throughout, I mean, let's be clear, throughout worldwide human history, leadership and authority have been connected with dominance and winning and taking and owning it for yourself and like who can amass the most power, the most wealth, the most, you know, whatever it is. And as we slowly, haltingly, way too late, but we're moving there, 
move toward this world where more women, where more people of color, where more LGBTQ folks, where all of these previously less represented people step into positions of leadership, we have to continually expand what our definition of what leadership sounds like is because, again, the only other possible solution is for all the people who've controlled leadership since the beginning of time, continuing to hire and promote more people who look and sound like them. And that is a, like, it's such a human thing to do. So Julie and I dove into some pretty intense research this summer because, hi, we had time. It was COVID <laughs> on authenticity and the idea of authenticity. And, and as we did that, we, we, I ended up diving pretty deep into the world of brain science and how our brains process information and identity and story and all those things that we were talking about at the beginning. We are so primed, of course, to look for community, to look for tribal affinity. And that's that's how we survived on an evolutionary level for so long is by forming tribes with like-minded and often like other things with people like ourselves. So it makes sense that diversity initiatives can feel scary to people who suddenly are asking to form a tribe with people who don't look and sound like them. So true. But that's the only way we move forward. It's the only way that the world gets more inclusive because frankly, all power concentrated in the hands of one demographic of people is just terrible. It's just, it's terrible. Totally. And I think especially for people who are so used to have enough people like them that mm -hmm. they don't have to look outside the box. So, oh, wait, like this is, it doesn't seem fair. It seems like you're trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do. Yeah. But I want to look at the actually, maybe the, the complete other side of it is that, you know, like we both know as female entrepreneurs, so much can be said about how unfair and undiverse the world is. Um, and we don't even need to get into it. But on the other side, you know, as an entrepreneur who was different, you know, I'm a woman. I was like many, many events, the only woman speaking. Mm -hmm. I was also, I came from a different community where there are, I come from the, the ultra Orthodox world where there's like almost no entrepreneurs. And on the other side, I was also more interesting. Yeah. I was the only one wearing a dress to pitch, you know, uh -huh. I, could also use it. I had a different voice. And while I was busy being anxious about it, it also really stood out. Yep. So it's a shame, like going back to what he said in the beginning, what a shame it is to cover part of what differentiates us because as entrepreneurs or as people really like a lot of our advantage lies in our differentiation and where we can stand out. Absolutely. And, and again, that, bringing that forward as opposed to covering it up is the center of our mission. And it's that th this is the authenticity conundrum. It's like, what does it mean to be authentic in the world and to fully step into your identity as a human being, but also knowing that we never communicate in a vacuum. We're always communicating with other people and they have their stuff and we have our stuff. It's, this is the very complex territory that we just geek out about working in. It's so exciting. It's so, it, I never stop being fascinated by 
how human beings make the choices that we make to show up and how we respond to other people's choices. I'm just so fascinated by your work with authenticity. And I think especially because this is such a word that is so overused and oh, everyone yes. is about being authentic until like you're like, you're not being authentic if you're like kind of, you know, building this facade of being authentic. Yeah. And one one place where like just listening to you now, it really hit me was I remember, you know, those are things that you, a lot of us folks that are like, don't come from the specific, you know, uh, specific, and it's so specific, by the way, it's like, white, middle aged, you know, each Mm -hmm. industry has, I'm sure if we talk about Broadway, we'll have like a different, you know, specific, very slightly different (laughs) uh, body size, like so many, so many different things. So a lot of times you don't even think about it. Those are things that you just you do. It's almost it's almost like your body does it because you don't even have to think about it because mm-hmm. you know it's like your survival instinct. Yes. And I was interviewed a few years ago uh, about uh, for the BBC uh, uh, about um, there was a great article about really ultra orthodox Jews in Israel going into tech and uh, specifically in Israel. Probably a lot of our listeners don't know that a lot of our community doesn't participate in the in the workforce let alone technology and of course we did a lot of you know conversations about my startup and about you know how how do you even make your way into it and later on they came into my house on a friday to see how we get ready for shabbat for some color it was very funny and one question that uh david the, the journalist asked me kind of hit so close to home and it was something that nobody never nobody ever asked me before and it made me understand that when you're com- when you're different you just work so much harder <laughs> yes just in one question i don't even remember what the que- well, the actual question was suddenly it was so, so clear to me how hard i worked to speak not not uh, physically uh, in a different voice, but to be aware of all the cultural references, to you know, to out Buffy uh, the biggest Buffy fans, and to <laughs> out. Uh, <laughs> I love you, brother Buffy. Yeah, and you know, I wrote in a, in a in a magazine in Israel, which is very much like the the equivalent of of like Cosmo in America. Mm-hmm. So. To out like be to out secular teenage girl the secular teenage girls to write in so many different voices and to to know and to be able to relate to people on their level and, yeah. and in many ways by the way I think it's it's a real power and it's it's given me the power of empathy and of connection but suddenly one question from him crystallized how nobody made the same effort for me oh. like nobody tried hard to understand where I come from yeah, and uh, not to sound all like, you know, whiny, but talking about authentic voices, mm-hmm. it means also that other people need to do the work and consider the value of having those authentic voices. So I, I completely digress, but you just opened my mind. So I had to well, talk about that's it. What you've just identified so beautifully there is when Audre Lorde talks about the mythic norm. And this, this again, this takes it back a little bit to our, our middle-aged white man example. But, but what we're talking about is a world in which there is a normal and then that there is an outside of the normal. And because of how our survival instinct works, which you identified again, the 
abnormal ones of the tribe must adapt to fit the norm because the norm is the one that's got the power. And the norm doesn't really have to do it in the other direction because why would they expend that energy? And our brains are very, very, very good at conserving energy. Like it's, it's you know, it's, a, again, survival imperative. We need energy to survive. Um, whatever is kind of going to be the shortcut is what our brain is probably going to take most of the time unless we very specifically demand it to not take a shortcut. So uh, for everyone who is considered outside of the mythic norm, we spend an enormous amount of energy and on adapting to fit into the norm. So this is what, uh, if your listeners are unfamiliar with the term, this is a really good term to know, code switching. Code switching is, originally it was coined as uh, an explanation of how people who know multiple languages mm-hmm. have almost slightly different personalities depending on which language they're speaking. So true. Yes. So, so true. Yeah. I started speaking both English and Hebrew at seven months. So it, it's so true. Yes. And so you're, I mean, the way you think, the way you put thoughts together, the way you know, with the way that you interact, how much arm gestures you mean, I, mm-hmm. I mean, all of it is different from different languages, but yeah. it, has be, it, it has been uh, adopted, I think, to particularly understand how African-American people and Black people in general adapt to suit themselves to a white world by getting rid of the stereotypical example in America is African-American vernacular English, which is a now, thank goodness, because linguistics has finally like joined the modern world is recognized as a legitimate dialect of language. But before it was considered improper English, bad English, poor English. Exactly. But in order for Af- for black people to be considered employable, to be considered uh, successful, to be able to consider to even to be safe in certain situations, they would have to put on their white voice. So, if people are interested in this subject, I highly recommend the movie "Sorry to Bother You," which is a dark comedy, dark, dark comedy about a a black man who begins working for a call center and he's making calls to these people like anonymous calls trying to sell something. And he becomes the the most successful salesperson at this call center by putting on a white voice. And they do it actually like not to give too much away, but they do it by actually he's lip syncing to a different actor's voice. Um, But it is absolutely hilarious, eye-opening, fascinating. But it's not just Black people that do this. To, to a certain extent, we, we all code switch in different arenas of our lives. Nobody talks to their boss the same way they talk to their child. Right. Nobody talks to a puppy the same way they talk to a, a potential venture capitalist. Like We have these different qualities in our voice and in our expression that we bring forward to suit the environment that we're in. Oh, you're reminding me of a hilarious TikTok uh, video of someone <laughs> speaking to their coworker as if they were speaking to a child. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And I think there is so much unsaid and un, until recently, at least unresearched uh, when it comes like there are so many layers because it's not only our voice it's a representative of uh, who we are and how comfortable we feel with ourselves and how safe we are to feel comfortable with ourselves how safe we are thank you for saying that because that is do we feel safe in environment or not like when people want to talk about diversity equity and inclusion until you create 
psychological safety, you cannot expect people to show up authentically. It's not safe to do so. Because for, for some people, it's like, you know, it's the danger of getting an investment or not. But so, for so many people, it's the danger of their lives, their jobs, yes. their livelihoods. Uh, and I want to acknowledge my privilege in speaking about that. Mm-hmm. And what I've gone through is, is completely different uh, of what other people have to go through. Uh, so thank you for this. And, and it's just, it's so, I think, especially during COVID, when we are, all physically distant from each other. And I think craving more than ever the connection and then our authenticity and our stories and our voices, so to speak, are such a tool of that. And if we're not feeling comfortable doing it in our real voices, uh, we lose so much. We do. We could, because again, it's, it's the, the level of energy that is required to put on that mask. It's a, it's an enormous output. So how can we expect people to be fully creative and fully innovative and fully showing up when they are expending? It's, it's like a computer with too many processes running. Totally. Okay. So we have so much to unpack and <laughs> we're just a fascinating person, Casey, um, but I want to start from this. So you decided, you and Julie decided to start a business and you become unlike, as you said, many survival jobs that actors or singers or creative people have, you become a fully fledged entrepreneurs, right? And you're really, uh, I don't know how much of it was already there in the beginning, but you're really looking at it and you're not saying, oh, this is something that we're doing on the side. This is a real thing that you care about, that you're putting your soul into, your souls into rather, and you're building it and you have a vision about it. And this brings me into like, just, you know, I love reading uh, tabloids or or like just, you know, whatever uh, interviews with like the latest actress or Uh actor. And, you know, I always like, it always is fascinating to me how successful actors say, oh, when you're an actor, you're so dependent on someone else to choose you and all that, which I'm sure is true. But especially in the last few years when I've been, you know, a tech entrepreneur, it's, it's, it's like really strikes me because as an entrepreneur, you're also, you're always performing and you're always, you're always being judged by someone. You're always auditioning pretty much. Yes. Very or you much need so. someone else while you're working very hard, maybe as an actress, it's on your craft. I don't know. I want to hear from you. But as an entrepreneur, it's on your company. You're always like in those like kind of uh, junctions and like uh, places where you need someone, you know, pick me, choose me <laughs> Roberts kind of moment. So I want to hear from you. Was it, did you meet like the same things or was it like more empowering as entrepreneur to be able to build your own thing and be maybe less dependent? Tell me. Oh my gosh. So you definitely just identified something that I've been thinking about now for years, which is that there are a lot of commonalities. (laughs) Being an actor, being a professional actor was great training ground for being an entrepreneur because yeah, you are putting yourself out there. Uh, Certainly another connection is that as an actor, I was more or less selling myself, my identity. And, and for, for us as the, the, the faces of the voices of vital voice training, we are selling ourselves. Like part of the reason why you choose vital voice training is because you dig us as human beings. So in that way, there, there are, (laughs) there are a lot of similarities, 
you know, in terms of being a, oh gosh, there's so many different ways you could put this, uh, a multipreneur or a multi-passionate entrepreneur or a, I used to call it a slashy, like actor slashy. slash entrepreneur slash this, like slash this. Yeah. It was a very interesting transition for me. So we started Vital Voice Training in 2014. I mentioned I'd gotten off the, the National Tour of Les Mis and kind of searched for a while of like, what's the next thing for me? And at that point, at, in 2014, I was really still pursuing uh, auditioning like all the time. I was up for the Broadway transfer of the Les Mis tour that I had been on. Oh, wow. By the way, I want to take a second to <laughs> out about you being in Les Mis. I saw Les Mis twice in, in New York and in, uh, in London. And I'm just like, it's a beautiful oh, my show. God. It's such a special show. I don't know that I will ever be in a show that has that, that gets that kind of response from the audience. I mean, people just love that show. It affects them so deeply. I think because it's telling a really universal story of yeah. you know redemption and hope and and mercy and justice and all of those things. So, you know, I got off the tour in 2012. In 2013, I was invited to perform on the Oscars with Hugh Jackman and the cast of Les Mis, uh, the movie cast, which was incredible. It was like the most wild and crazy experience I think that I'd ever had up till that point in my life. And I was one of 10 women that they chose internationally to go do this performance. So I was like, wow, I think they like me, right? Okay. So, and then 2014, really about the same time that we were starting by the voice, I was up for the Broadway transfer and and the thing that you do as an actor, and and we do this as entrepreneurs too, you get so close to an opportunity and you try to tell yourself like, okay, this doesn't mean that I have it. Um, you, you try to give yourself a little intellectual separation, a little emotional separation, but deep down, God, you want it so much. You want so it so hard. much. And basically I was on hold for this Broadway show. And then I found out that I because of kind of some shuffling in the group of people got taken off the table and I did not book oh it. Oh my God. And it broke my heart. It really did. Like in that moment, it broke me for a while. It broke my love of theater. Like it was like, I thought this was going to be the time that I finally checked the Broadway box, you know? Mm-hmm. And it happened that it happened right as vital voice training was being birthed and taking off was a really interesting transition point. You know, the journey of vital of course has been, you know, ups and downs and sideways, but, (laughs) but we did, we hit a zeitgeist. We hit a need. Um, People really dug what we were doing. We were having success. You know, we got in front of people and they would refer us to more people and things were happening. And at the same time, you know, I had kind of fallen out of love a little bit with acting. And then I had the moment maybe a year later or, you know, this was a long journey, but whatever. So I had the moment of, have I given up on my dreams in order to do something else? And what does that mean about me as a person? What does it mean that I have basically stopped auditioning and like, I'm not really pursuing that anymore, you know, because of of course, a lot of people leave the acting industry. People are leaving it left and right right now as we have this, you know, this major disruption in live entertainment, of course, of COVID. But we're always questioning whether or not we can actually do this again in the same way that entrepreneurs do. This is why it's a great training ground. 
what I eventually, and, and it, it came to a head for me. So I, I, one of the things that I still do and still love doing is coaching, particularly college aged young actors, young artists, mm-hmm. and they're brilliant and they're so fiery and passionate. And I work with them and I see the kid that I was, uh, and I don't say kid condescendingly, they, they are young adults, but you know what I mean? Like I'm 37. They feel like kids. To me. <laughs> but I, I work with them and, and we work on the performance of the song and we work on, on the emotional stuff around auditioning and the, the myths of the artist industry. And I feel such uh, connection to them. But I, I started doing that for an organization called the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival, which is this really cool yearly or a uh, festival for college uh, regional theaters and stuff around the, the country. So um, I was partnered with uh, a guy who was like a kind of a big deal Broadway person. And we were judging the musical theater competition and then coaching the finalists. And that was back in the beginning of Vital. Yeah. So this was like 2016. So like January of 2016. And I remember thinking, wow, he's a Broadway guy. Like I want him to know that I'm still kind of a performer, but like also, you know, like the thing that we all do, which is like, I want you to know all the cool stuff about me because you're really impressive and I want to impress you. And he, I remember we had finished a day of coaching and we were sitting down to eat with the other featured artists of this festival. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're really good at this. You're really good at this coaching thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I mean, I really, I really love it. I dig it a lot. He's like, have you ever considered that maybe this is what you're supposed to be doing? And it wasn't, it was not condescending. He was genuinely giving me a compliment. But in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, that means he thinks that I can't be a performer. He thinks that I should give up on performing and just teach. Who am I anymore? Who am I? Exactly. And I think that identity, again, this all kind of like goes into the cloud of authenticity and identity and like who we are and who we want to be and who we want to be seen as. I wanted him to see me as also a performer and not just a teacher. Um, And he, what he saw, because it was his experience of me, was that I am a great freaking coach. And I am a great freaking coach. I have a gift. And maybe he was so used to great, you know, actors and singers. And he was actually impressed by, hey, once, you know, I finally meet someone who's a great freaking coach. It's more impressive to me than another actor. So for me, having that moment with him and having that like really deep emotional reaction of like, oh no, instead of taking the compliment, that was really a catalyst moment for me to, to finally be like, wait, why am I trying to separate out these, all these identities and all these different dreams when I can integrate them. I love this. And that was the beginning of the journey of like, okay, I am this. I am also this. I am also this. I have this skill and this skill. And 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 starting to think about what unites them. And I said this at the very beginning of the interview, what, igni- what unites all of the things that I love and am passionate about is the voice. And the voice as a physical instrument, but also as an instrument of movements and an instrument of change and an interest instrument of identity. And I can bring that to all of these parallel careers that I have, which I'm trying to juggle. And, and that, that is my body of work in the world. 
I love it. And I, I so relate because, you know, being uh, an entrepreneur and especially during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, when deciding to close my, my company, it's been, you know, the decision was very clear, but then you get hit by the identity crisis. Oh my gosh. And I think part of it is because in our culture or maybe just in our minds, in our bodies, in our brains, we put specific professions also on a pedestal. Oh, yeah. Or specific dreams on a pedestal. Very much And we so. have a hierarchy between our dreams, between the things that we're good at as multi-potential people. Okay, so what if I'm happier doing this or what if I'm happier doing everything together? It's more important to do the thing that in our culture is, you know, ranked higher. And then like, if I don't do this, if I give up on this, which also, who says you give up? Maybe yeah. you choose not to do it or you choose like to take your foot off the gas, you know, for a second. And if you choose to take a hiatus or or, or, or not do it, what does this say about you? Mm-hmm. Who says it says anything about you or who said, why is it a bad thing? And I'm not judging. I'm like identifying. Yes. And who is this amorphous, like they, what will they think? Like, who is that like imaginary committee that's judging us? It's really interesting to me. And by the way, this is really interesting because I think, you know, both of us are like outside thinkers and I don't think we ever cared about the they, but sometimes the they is us as a 13 year old who thinks oh, this yeah. is how my life will look like. Mm-hmm. This is what success will look like. Anything oh, yeah. else means I've given up. I super used to care about the they. I mean, I uh, I am a classic eldest child perfectionist people oh, pleaser. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just like, I, I want to do good work. I want the A plus. I want the gold star. I want the award. Like I, oh my gosh. And I have to fight that. So like learning to, I mean, part of this journey of accepting, you know, that, that I have all these different focuses and that my career path is going to look different from other people. And that I, you know, I'm going to let some things go sometimes and then pick them back up or whatever is okay. There is the, they, and, and I'm never going to be able to completely disconnect from caring about what they think, but I also want to care about what I think right now. And and maybe at least give it the same weight as the they. Yes. Even if you don't like prioritize you above them, but just at least the same. That would be really nice. <laughs> right, wouldn't it? It would be great. It would be great. We're in practice. We're practicing. I love it. So so you, you really start this amazing business, which has been going now for six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. It'll be seven years in April. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I hope you're really proud of both of yourselves. We are. We're so proud. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting to me, I'm sure many things, like we said, carried, you know, you, you kind of could deduct and learn from your, from your, your like professional experiences, actors, mm-hmm. but then what, what were like kind of the new things that, oh my gosh, we need to do this. We need to build this business. And there's something that we have never had to think about before. Literally everything about being an entrepreneur, (laughs) other than the emotional stuff. I mean, I I remember I called it going to Google University where it's Mm -hmm. like, you're like, okay, what is this whole LLC thing? Like, what do, how do I make a contract? Like, what do I, what, okay, I know I need a website, obviously, but like, what does my website need to have on it? What is this whole marketing thing? Do I need to buy Facebook ads? Like, we didn't know any of this stuff. And we, 
fortunately, I think there is a scrappiness to the theater person that is like, I've got a blanket, I've got a barn, let's put on a show. Like we (laughs) figure stuff out. We figure stuff out that is our essential, uh, one of our essential skill sets, I think is making stuff work. Like you've got a deadline, you got to make it work like opening night. You're not going to change opening night. So, so yes. Oh gosh, there was so much that I didn't know how to do (laughs) and still, but so it's like either figuring it out for yourself, but it's also knowing when to reach out for help. And we're starting to get better on that too. That is so important. Really, really assembling our core team and our, our sort of board of directors, even though they're, you know, they're not official board yet. Uh, but, but we have our, we have our team around us now that really are our advisors and our, our experts, our outside experts that we bring in for help. We have an assistant who is a glorious unicorn. I don't know how we functioned before she came into wow. our business. Like we have to keep her. We have to figure out how to keep her. <laughs> She's a <laughs> I love this because I think reaching out for help is such, again, such a thing that is like nobody tells you hey, you should do that more. It's like our culture says, no, you should be self-sufficient and figure it all out alone. And like, you don't think about, you know, I don't know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or, you know, uh, of course, white men reaching out for help. No, like we were like fed like this story of genius. Alone genius. Oh my gosh. Kill that myth with fire. There is no such thing as a lone genius. There are geniuses with ideas, but no genius has ever, ever done it by themselves. And there's a great story. You may be familiar with the story as a woman entrepreneur and as a mother and as a wife and all of (laughs) your roles. So we just interviewed uh, a a wonderful expert on invisible labor on our podcast. I love this. Uh, She's phenomenal, Rachel Wynn. Um, And she was talking about, you know, this, this sort of genius, historical genius that we all know and that we all think about who had a basically a contract with his wife. And the contract basically went, you're going to bring me all my meals. You're going to do all my laundry. You're going to keep our house clean. You're going to, you know, take care of our children. You are uh, only going to initiate. You will never initiate contact with me. I will initiate contact with you. Like, like basically like don't flirt with me because it distracts me that, <laughs> that level of stuff because she and and she basically made his work possible and of that course. person is Albert Einstein Oh my God. Uh, do you know the work of Anne Helen Peterson? Yes. Oh my gosh. Her writing is so wonderful. I love her. She's she's my dream guest yes. on the podcast. Uh, I've actually just ordered her book, uh, I Can't Even, about burnout, which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about. And she just wrote, she has an amazing, like a glorious newsletter. And she just wrote um, an article there called The Mother Does It. <sighs> and listen, if you don't know who does it and it's done... <laughs> Someone has done it. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, yeah, I I love it. Wow. So I'm gonna I'm gonna check out that episode with Rachel Wynn because it sounds amazing. No, and it's so so true. You have to have someone. Um, we all have. By the way, us. speaking about COVID, I've seen so many. You know, I think it's like taken many many of us like light years behind. Uh, because like a lot of the a lot of the gender roles like went way just really reversed and not only that but you know all the, the like who's essential and who's not it's like it's yeah. really it truly really takes us back to the 40s um 
anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We digressed. I could, I could, I could, that, that's one of those topics that I get very passionate about. And I, I am not a mother, but gender roles and and division of labor, you know, and, and that happens everywhere in life. It doesn't just happen in families. It happens in, you know, in work relationships and in offices. It's the same thing. Oh, totally. And and who's, who's gonna, who's gonna, um, do the things that don't have the glory and the, you know, the LinkedIn posts and the awards uh, attached to them. Someone has to do that. And when you try to check who does it, uh, there are no surprises (laughs) there usually. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I want to speak to you about being a co-founder, being a partner, uh, because starting a business I think with a partner has so many ups and downs, so many pros and cons. I think loneliness as a founder is a subject that thankfully is starting to be talked about a little bit more, but still nowhere near where it should be. Mm. And by the way, also loneliness, even when you do have partners, like it's it's a lot of times it's something that still founders uh, do feel and experience, I think all the time. And then again, it's it's kind of it's it's another relationship, especially if you're kind of looking at a marathon and you're looking at building something with a vision that's going to stay here. So, especially as two founders who didn't come from you know business school and didn't like you didn't think about you didn't dream about starting a business, and I don't know how long you've known each other before. Can you can you tell us more about about that? Oh, the co-founder journey. So I basically have two marriages. I have my marriage marriage with my husband and I have my business marriage with my work wife, Julie. And Julie is brilliant. I, I am so thankful to be doing this with her specifically, not just with another person, but with her specifically, but, but certainly just, I mean, having a co-founder there, there is a there, there are a lot of advantages to having someone to bounce ideas off of, to have someone at this point, we say, we say this all the time. We share a brain. Like it's, you know, it's just like we finish each other's sentences. It's ridiculous. But we also do still have some very core differences in how we think, how we interpret information, all of that stuff. So Mm -hmm. for us, the biggest challenges have come in our very differing work styles, and our very differing relationships with outside authority. I, Julie is naturally rebellious, which is great. <laughs> I have found my inner rebel. And that is something that I think has has shown up sometimes in like, well, why do we need to do this thing that consistently yeah. we're supposed to be doing? Because like what? And it's good that we question why do we need to do that thing? But like sometimes we just need to do the thing and the thing needs to get done, you know? Yeah. But <laughs> so so the biggest challenges I think have come from our, our very different styles. I'm very extroverted. She's very introverted. So us, I mean, talk about having to practice what you preach. Like our relationship with each other and how we, how I have had to be very conscious of my own ability because I think while I speak, and I speak while I think, and because I'm, it's, as if anyone who's listening to this podcast, you can tell I like to talk. <laughs> you come to the right place, Casey. <laughs> it's very easy for me to dominate, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, whereas she wants to formulate her thoughts before they come out of her mouth and stuff. And what I've learned from working with her and from observing her and from looking at the gifts that introverts bring to the table 
is that like she has the ability to synthesize a lot of information, listen, 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 and then say the exact right thing that needs to be said. Whereas I'll get to the right thing, but I'll probably say 42 things before I get to the right thing sometimes. <laughs> so so I have I have learned from her. I have learned to be a better listener from her. I've learned to be more observant from her as opposed to just, you know, presenting and the output and stuff. And the other big challenge for us has been, and I know that she won't mind me talking about this because we talk about this publicly all the time. She's got ADD. And so her brain just works differently. Whereas I'm kind of a natural, like a linear processor. And like, I, you know, I have my to-do list and I have my outline and I, you know, check the boxes and get stuff done, blah, 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 blah. She kind of thinks in clouds and she, so I'll give you a concrete example. We're we're about to launch a course in January that we're really excited about. And we're working on, I, I wanted us to come up with three descriptions of who it was, who it was for three benefits that you were going to get from it and three things that were included in it. So again, mm-hmm. linear numbers outline patterns. Yeah. <laughs> in order to get to that, she had to like, word vomit every single thing that she was thinking about about the course and we had to go there first and then we can synthesize it down so it's basically you know i work from structure outwards she works from cloud inwards and that when we work together at our best makes us both better it makes us both better idea people both better execution people and in the meantime sometimes it causes frustrations because I, again, being the more linear processor, I work faster. I have the ability to drive myself really hard, which is not necessarily a good thing, whereas she is much better than I am at taking breaks and not getting burned out. Um, and this is something that she's had to learn. I know she would say that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. So that's been the source of our biggest challenges, but it's also, I'm so grateful that A, that we have not overcome those challenges, but that we now have systems with which we can manage those challenges and that we have built a relationship over the past seven years where we can have tough conversations with each other. We can say, you let me down here. That's that's so key. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so easy to just kind of run away from those pitfalls and like kind of say, oh, I, I won't think about it. I yeah. won't talk about it. Or, okay, this isn't working. While communication, speaking about voice, uh-huh, right? Right. Again, it's all practice what you preach. And I think I have a healthier conflict relationship with Julie than almost anyone in my life. And it has taken building over the years, like our our ability to be in a place of productive conflict with each other. But I... Frankly, I wish every relationship in my life had that healthy of a conflict style. <laughs> By the way, let, let's double click on this because conflict resolution, like I'm such a conflict averse p- person. Oh, me too. And <laughs> one, of the, you know, one of the things that kind of signaled to me how much I care about my business is when for my business, I constantly put myself in like situations uh, where you have potential for conflict, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're going to be judged by investors and then, or, or you're, you know, you're going to do something outside of the box and maybe it wouldn't work and maybe some people may, might be angry. So I want to talk about the art of the, of like leaning into the conflict without Ooh. like running away from it. 
Yes. Okay. So in our research on the human brain and uh, everything that kind of goes into communication, one of the things that we keep coming back to is our fear and our stress response and what that does to, to us, right? So when we go into fear, when we go into stress, our body is sensing something in the environment that that is it is sensing as dangerous and that danger can look like you know a lion in the corner of the room that wants to eat you or it can look like a stressful conversation with your co-founder or you know a a conflict scenario and our brain is doing the exact same thing to us in both circumstances it's telling us we're unsafe and it is preparing to probably most people are familiar with fight or flight but we're we we have a wider understanding of that now it's fight flight freeze and also in communication scenarios, the one that we've been talking about a lot recently is fawn, F-A-W-N. Oh, interesting. All right. So I'll, we'll, we'll describe here so people can understand what happens to them when they're in conflict mode. So uh, we talk about objectives. What is the objective of my communication? And this is an actor term that is basically like why I say what I say the way I say it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, if we don't, come in with a clear objective to a conversation moment, we're going to choose one no matter what. Because as we said at the beginning, we always have a goal. We always have a goal with the conversation. So, so we might default to an objective. Exactly. We might default to something that is either habitual for us mm-hmm. or what we call primal objectives, which is when we have oh, this wow. activation of the fear zone. So fight objectives, that's that thing that's like suddenly you hate the person that you're talking to. Suddenly mm-hmm. you want to destroy their argument or you want them to feel small or you want to dominate, right? That's the objective that moves toward your audience. There's the flight objective, which is, uh, I'm just going to avoid this conversation because I just don't even want to have this guy, you know, I'm going to avoid preparing for this thing. I'm going to talk really quickly so that it gets over as quickly as possible. And then I'm going to get the hell out of here, right? <laughs> That's running away from it. That's going away yeah. from your audience. So the freeze objective is interesting. Freeze is both our very first stress response in that it's the moment in which uh, you know, like if you're laying in your bed in the middle of the night and it's dark and suddenly you hear a noise and your body goes, what? Right. And you freeze because what's happening is your bot, your brain is doing a very quick assessment. Do I need to fight? Do I need to run? But that assessment takes a second. That's freeze. So that's the moment where your brain goes blank when you're in the middle of a fight and you can't think of anything to say. You can't think of a quote unquote comeback. That's freeze. That staircase wisdom where you Uh have all the best comebacks after you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's because literally our stress response turns off our prefrontal cortex. Wow. Because our prefrontal cortex is not necessary to fight or run away. So, okay, so so freeze is the first response. It's also the last response. And this is, this is mm. where burnout comes in. When our bodies have decided that there is no use in fighting or fleeing, our body is going to shut down to facilitate a painless death. And that's burnout, apathy, I can't even, all of that. We've had a lot of that in COVID. So then there's the fawn response. So fawn is, I think, very socialized into women, but it is certainly not exclusive to women where it's like, if I'm really nice and accommodating and easy and I, I compliment, I, I compliment the predator on his fur, then, then maybe he won't eat me. Yeah. And that is a conflict response. That's a trauma response. It's a fear response. We're, we're trying to protect ourselves. Yeah. I think we can all recognize situations where we, we did that. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so, it's just so real. Right. So I think part of getting better at conflict is getting to know your own body and your own body habits. Your, your, am I, am I somebody who goes into fight mode? Okay. Then maybe I need to like, well, in all of these, you need to take a breath, (laughs) but maybe, (laughs) maybe I need to like purposefully pull back. If I'm somebody who runs away from things, maybe I need to purposely re-engage. If I'm somebody who, if I'm in freeze, I need to take a breath and re-engage with the moment and and trust that my brain will go back online if I give it time. And if I'm somebody who stays in fawn, what is that doing for me? How is it protecting me? And and I want to emphasize that none of these responses are bad in and of themselves. They are all useful and necessary survival instincts. So so I don't want to shame anybody for going into these because this is your brain doing a brain. No, thing. they're there for a reason. Exactly. And as we said, especially because some people really aren't safe. Yeah. So sometimes that is the only appropriate response in the moment, but they don't feel good. So we've got to we've got to get away from the win-lose binary in conflict. So true. And I think it's also a question of what serves us, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, does it serve us? Is it, is it our choice or is it, you know, our, our brain's default choice that mm-hmm. doesn't actually feel good, like you said, or doesn't actually serve the purpose and just being aware can do so much. Well, and I, I also think knowing that not every conflict can be solved in the moment. And especially once both parties are in that emotionally heightened s- stage. Yeah. Like I think, and especially for high achieving type A perfectionist people pleasing types like us, you know, yeah. um, we, we want to get it done. We want to, we want to fix it. We want to move, you know, so that we can move on. Right. And sometimes you just have to let something breathe. You have to know when to walk away. And like, once we get to that place of heightened, nothing's going to get done because, because it's prime, we're in primal. So we have to like take a second, get out of that. And then we can come from a place of problem solving and listening. Yeah. And I think also, this is so interesting because, you know, there are the situations where people are not safe and you do what you have to do. A lot of times your brain kind of protects you. Right. But I think also putting that aside, I think in our lifestyle as entrepreneurs, as high achieving people in corporate actors, whatever it may be, we put ourselves into that fight or flight, etc. Yeah. mode way more than it's natural for our body or for our brain to be there. Because we we speaking about burnout, we stress ourselves, we give ourselves more deadlines that we can, <laughs> we can deal with. I'm totally to blame for for that one. And then we need to deal with that. And as you said, kind of talking to ourselves, telling to, telling ourselves not every situation like this is actually a, a real danger. Yes. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes we can have a conversation or you can make a choice uh, to not be in this situation again or to take one less project. But we are <laughs> saying so, no, what's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but we're already primed to feel like this is again just as much of a danger like anything else. Yeah. Well, and I think some of us are addicted to that that heightened state, right? It it feels Yeah, the adrenaline right, right? So some of us I think some of us really genuinely need to reconnect with what a body at rest feels like and and de-shame the idea of resting. 
Because I think sort of to take it full circle, it's like when you are away from that mythic norm, when you're trying to prove yourself, it does feel dangerous to rest because it feels like, well, what if somebody else gets ahead? Or what if, what if this is the moment, this is the opportunity that was going to make the difference. And I say no to it. Like we have to de-shame the idea of letting our body recover. And, And I have a book recommendation for this. It's a phenomenal deconstruction of hustle culture. It's called Hustle and Float. And it's about, oh, oh, so cool. Uh, Rahaf Harfouch wrote it. She's amazing. Uh, We actually interviewed her on our podcast as well. I I love this. She's great. So uh, it's it's a beautiful examination of hustle culture and also of the brain science of creativity and how our brains, in order to be at our most brilliant, our brains need rest. Yeah. And I think during COVID, we can talk about the terrible job loss and let alone in companies that have closed people who couldn't go to the grocery store. But also a lot of us have experienced forced rest. Forced and rest. you have to deal with that uh, if you're not used to it. So it's it's a big it's a big subject. It's super real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. So, we don't have much time left, but I really want to get to talking about burnout because I feel like we talked a lot around it. Yeah. So, recently I've read this great tweet uh, by someone called Katie Leeson, who I, I don't know her, but I love what she wrote. So, this is what she says. She says, we need to stop glamorizing overworking, oh. please. <laughs> right? The yeah. absence of sleep, good diet, exercise, relaxation, and time with friends and family isn't something to be applauded. Too many people wear their burnout as a badge of honor and it needs to change. And I think we can talk about burnout, what leads to it, etc., a lot. But what I really connected to is that I feel that I was definitely wearing my burnout as a badge of honor. You know, the people where you ask them how they are and say, oh, I'm so busy. And it's like, if you like, it's a good thing to say. Oh, yeah. So I want to hear what's your relationship to this, especially as an entrepreneur, because as entrepreneur, we a lot of times feel that we have to create our own work. And if we're resting for a second, or if we're showing the world that we're not on 24 seven, it's like the world is work even going to be there in the next second. Are we yeah. still going to be relevant? Yeah, I I have definitely experienced that. And I, I think that high achieving instinct, that perfectionism instinct is something that I have spent uh, a lot of time dealing with and a lot of time figuring out how to do. So really... I, I'm still in acting class a couple times a week or a couple times a month. And um, it's been so interesting to do the work of acting class since I've basically stopped auditioning because instead of thinking about picking songs via, is this going to fit for my book? Is it going to be appropriate for an audition? I'm just singing what I want to sing, which is such a different orientation than the way I, I worked before this, which was always towards a goal. It's like acting from joy, kind of, and curiosity. Exactly. And, and pleasure, the pleasure of using my voice. And, and but I, I bring up acting class in the course of, of high achievement and, and burnout and all of that stuff, because I really spent, ever since I started working with this amazing coach, um, who's like my acting Yoda, she's amazing. I've spent the last many, many, many years learning how to do less as an actor, how to, how to spend less energy giving the 
the impressive performance, turning off the inner director, not over singing. Like it's not about like how loud I can sing or how high I can belt or whatever. It's about telling a story and sometimes taking away that veneer of performance and doing something that feels really authentic feels incredibly vulnerable because it feels like you're not doing enough. It feels like you're not doing enough to impress them or to prove that you are the right choice. But it's also, and especially in the course of coaching other actors on this, I see the difference. You can tell when someone is trying versus when someone is just being and 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 in the moment and present. And it's so it's so attractive to see someone who is in the moment and present as opposed to showing you how hard they're working or how well they're doing or how great they are. But it does for those of us who, who are used to that doing energy, that showing energy, it is an act of immense vulnerability and self-trust to back away and to sort of step into yourself and let it be easy and let it be pleasurable as opposed to be like nose to the grindstone American Puritan style of like, you know, like you said, like work is the ethic. Like this is what we do to prove that we're good and moral people as we work really hard and we eschew pleasure and like none of that stuff. So ease and pleasure. And that's actually the center of having a healthy, engaged voice is physically, is your voice should feel easy. It should feel pleasurable to use your voice. I mean, I've explored in so many different ways in my life, like how to invite more ease and pleasure and less effort into the conversation. And th- this brings tears to my my eyes because it's so vulnerable. At the end of the day, it's just you standing there and you're asking people to love you in a way, right? Yes, Maybe actors are more aware of it, but it's all You're asking people to bear witness to your humanity in all of its weirdness, right? We are all, we're all so weird. Yeah. And, and that kind of makes you have to recognize that you alone, just you without all the bells and whistles are worth it. Absolutely. Which is so hard. It's a lifelong journey. Yeah, I think a lot about it because I think in the last five years, I've been so much about going outside of my comfort zone. And my mission is to be very comfortable inside my comfort zone. Mm, I love that. Yeah, because because there is a reason that it's your comfort zone, right? And we deserve comfort. We need comfort. We yeah. Again, ease, pleasure, comfort. None of these things are bad things. They're necessary to refuel ourselves to go out and do the hard work. Totally. And being in ease and being in comfort doesn't mean that you're not a hard worker yes. or that your work has any less uh, worth. It just means that you're in your element and mm. that you're attracting, you know, to be a little bit woo-woo, so much more abundance and you're you're playful and you enjoy it. Oh, yes. That it, that's it's so true. And and uh the more that I lean into those ideas, the the more things come. I mean, for me, like this, I, the last off-Broadway show that I booked was two summers ago, 2018. I had not been to an audition in months. I had a song I wanted to sing. 
Like I didn't go to this audition to book a job. I had a song that I wanted to sing for people. And I was like, you know, I'm going to see if I can get an appointment for this audition. I got an appointment. I watched in the room needing nothing from them, needing nothing from them. I was like, I'm going to sing my song. I did it. I left. I got a call back and I booked the job. And I still think that I booked the job because I, I didn't go to get the job. I went to have fun. I didn't need anything from them in that room. That's amazing. Okay. So I don't know. This is so beautiful. I think we have to end this on, on this note. And Casey, you have so much, so many amazing projects beyond the, the actual voice training. You have courses. Uh, you have this amazing work on authentic, uh, authenticity. Where can people uh, follow uh, you and Julie and Vital Voice training and read all these amazing things, hear your podcast, tell us where. So, so I have the www.vitalvoicetraining.com is of course our, our central website for that. And that is where you can find out how to work with us in terms of private coaching. Uh, we also do corporate trainings and group workshops. We have small goals of changing how communication how communication culture works in the world. Uh, you can find our project on authenticity, which hopefully is eventually going to be a book. And and then if you're curious about all the other stuff that I do, singing, coaching, and performing, and uh, performing with Broadway inspirational voices, uh, that is all on my personal website, which is CaseyAaronClark.com. I am a three-named human because of the actor's union, because <laughs> it was already <laughs> a Casey Clark, so I had to add my, my middle name. But uh, at CaseyAaronClark, you can you can find my performing stuff you can find my singing coaching uh i do some blogging for like a hot second in 2013 i was going to be a a lifestyle blogger so i've got some recipes on there it's a whole thing yes i i follow my curiosity but that that and then always social media i love chatting with people on twitter um so that's at casey aaron clark or at vital underscore voice on instagram at casey aaron clark at Vital Voice Training. Always happy to continue the conversation. And if anybody wants to talk about voice training, we do free 15-minute consultations with everybody. You can sign up for that on Vital Voice Training's website. That is amazing. And I highly, highly, highly uh, recommend. Casey, thank you so much oh, for being here. Oh, this was so here. wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for being so real and Aww. so vulnerable and so open and generous with your experience and with your uh, opinions and, and with your, your life lessons. I really, really appreciate it. And I love oh. you very much. Oh my gosh, I love you too, Hedva. This was so delightful. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. Thank you for listening to Looks Like Work. You can find resources, links, and of course, the episode show notes at roomsandwords.com. That's rooms, like a room, and words, and like an and.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really, really hope that you like my newsletter too. My newsletter is something that I send out every week, and I share thoughts, links, books, and just other things that I find thought-provoking, interesting, somehow contributing to these conversations that we're having here, or sometimes just joyously distracting. Again, the newsletter is sent out every week, and you can find the link to sign up on my website at roomsandwords.com. And I really hope to see you there, and of course, to see you here next week. Have a good one.